Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. Well, Gordon, how are you? Good, Will. How are you doing? Good to see you. Good to be here for another episode. trip to the field. Yes. A big, a big, a big field and kind of a, kind of a process type of conversation today. Okay. We've, what is we've, it? We have anatomical discussions. We have- Physiological. Certain, yeah. Certain species or groups today. It's a process that's, that garners a lot of attention. Maybe not as much attention as it should. I would, I would say, and that's that process called natural selection. Oh boy. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a, a loaded term, a loaded term, a term that sometimes Christians think is a, a, a dirty word because they, yeah. they associate it with the, the full blown microbes to man evolution. Yeah. Neo-Darwinian, Neo-Darwinian yeah. evolution. Right. Yeah. And so Maybe just to, to to kind of set the stage here, we should define uh, lots of definitions of terms probably today. Right. Um, so necessarily. We'll make sure that we define terms. Yeah. And- so natural selection, I would say, and I'm open to uh, amendment, of course, but uh, kind of an essence of natural selection would be differential reproduction and survival. Mm-hmm. Maybe in the other order, differential survival and then yeah. reproduction in a population of creatures. Yeah. So, so not pretty much all- you can. You can sandpaper it and and keep polishing that, but yeah, essentially, the popular organisms reproduce and in such a way that more are produced than survive, right? And they are living in some kind of natural environment, and or and the environment, um, since there's variation in population, some organisms are not as adapted to the prevailing conditions. Right. And they either die or they don't reproduce. Yep. And the ones that are, you know, most suited to that particular set of environmental conditions successfully reproduce and produce offspring and pass down those winning, winning characteristics, those winning, those winning Attributes, those winning genes, so to speak. Yeah. And the reason why many people associate it with evolution is because natural selection is what evolutionists say that, that causes populations to change. The thing that we shouldn't be afraid of as Christians is that there's a certain amount of information and there's this built-in variability that uh, through mutation or genetic recombination that causes variation and uh, and therefore differential survival and reproduction. But that doesn't generate that doesn't generate increased complexity. So that's where the rub is, yeah, with uh, where creationists would have to part company with evolutionists is they don't have a problem with natural selection. It's just, Increased complexity, right? In, and that's that's the big problem, and that's where evolutionists have to rely on some sort of some kind of mutation to generate this novel information, right? And so, so when when we're talking about this information, we're talk, so we're talking about creatures. Let's say a population of of lizards of some type, mm-hmm. population of lizards, and not uh, we can't tell this maybe right away, 
Uh, maybe we need to study these closely, but each individual lizard is, is not going to be exactly the same as the other, right. just like not all people are the same. Exactly. And the lizard's not going to be able to tell the, the different people apart, and so we're not going to be able to tell the lizard apart. Right. Unless we study them really closely. But so there's this natural variation that occurs. And so depending on the weather, depending on the food availability, depending on all these other factors. Camouflage. Yeah, camouflage. Maybe, maybe one lizard is, is, is a little bit bigger and a little more bright, brightly colored. All yeah. these factors. And there's a liability and he may stand out to predators a little bit more. So there's right. this, all, these, all, these, all these variables. Uh, abiotic and, and other uh, characteristics of the environment they live in, the ecosystem they live in. And, and depending on that particular year, that particular place, certain, certain individuals of that species are going to have a better likelihood of surviving and reproducing. Right. And the longer you survive, the more chances you're going to have to reproduce. Right. And so, and so uh, ranchers, uh, animal husbandry folks, farmers uh, that take care and raise creatures have long known this. Right. And use this to their advantage. Right. I mean, actually, natural selection was coined by a creationist before Darwin or somewhere back there named Edward Blythe, or Ed, Ed, I think Edward Blythe. He coined the term and it, it had to do exactly with how breeders, uh, it was a conservative term. It says that nature just sort of culls, culls the herd. Right. And the ones that are uh, sickly die off and the ones that are more robust survive. And that was just sort of a built-in, in a fallen world, a built-in mechanism to, to have the, the herd or flock or whatever be able to adapt, track the environment. Yep. You'll notice the, even the, the cattle that are up in the northern latitudes, like the, whether it's a, the yak or, or high elevation, you got a big, thick coat. Yeah, those highland got, cattle. Yeah, highland cattle. And then other bovids that are like of the bovine family are down in the tropics and they have a very, very thin coat that's better for hot climbs. So you, you've got, assuming that they were from a common ancestor, I'm not saying they were, but if they were, you have all sorts of climates that will select for certain traits. And not others. Right. Yeah. The, the, those thickest furred polar bears are going to be the ones that survive the harshest winters mm -hmm. in the Arctic. Right. And this, this, this is a generational type of change. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not one organism evolution. When they use that word natural selection, it's not talking about one organism. Right. Changing. Okay. That's called phenotypic plasticity where you, you uh, cause an organism to actually change by putting them under different stressors or different environmental conditions. You go to the beach and you tan, you know, that's not evolution. Right. Um, micro or otherwise, it's just changing, one organism changing. But if you change the whole character of the population. Right. Because of differential survival, then, then you're talking natural selection. Yeah. And the, and the expression and the, and the movement of these genes, quote unquote, these little segments of DNA that code for certain proteins, that's kind of the currency that we're talking about here. These things get exchanged in a population. Sometimes a catastrophic event might occur and an, a, a, something like a new island might form, for example. Mm -hmm. 
a new island in, in, off the coast in the Indo-Pacific, like a Krakatoa kind of event. Right. And this uh, this Wipes island- out everything on the <laughs> Yeah. So the old island gets decimated and then several years later, the volcan- volcano erupts again and then a new island forms and new species colonize that island. Mm-hmm. And, and so one of the ways that we see uh, natural selection working to, uh, to produce new species, which again is a generations long thing, it's very hard to observe, incredibly hard yeah. to actually observe Natural selection one, but uh, uh, the formation of a new subspecies or a new species. Yeah, that's rough because you have to have quite a few generations and most right. researchers don't do their, I mean, if you're doing a master's or you're doing a PhD, it's often, you know, it's a less, life, less, it's a than lifetime a half, work. less than a half a dozen years for right. a PhD. And so it's always these little short snapshots, but like the grants. Peter and Rosemary Grant in yeah. the Galapagos Islands, they've done it for, for decades and they've tracked natural selection in the finch populations there. They've done amazing- Amazing work. Amazing field work. Now, of course, they're, they're hardcore evolutionists. Uh, and so they, when you're doing it over even decades long research, which is great, but it's still just a drop in the bucket as far as geologic time. And so they still believe in the, the big- the big narrative of evolution. Right. But all they're seeing is little, little changes in finch populations. And they'll extrapolate that out. Right. And say, well, see, these little changes can amount to big changes if you can give it enough time. Right. And that's where, that's where they make the extrapolation, which I think is a, a false extrapolation. Yeah. And, and, and uh, just to touch on the grants for a minute here too, 40 plus years of studying finches putting little rings on their on the legs of these finches uh, banding birds is what we call it here in the states yeah, banding. And, uh, giving them numbers and then uh, measuring everything measuring everything watching them DNA uh, seeing how many offspring they have following their offspring and who mates with who for generations I know and so it's just a quintessential field work I mean it's top notch field work so hats off to the grants for what they have done it's just unfortunately they are trying to make a case for the using this example of natural selection, which is a great example, but using that to say that birds have, have evolved from some kind of theropod dinosaur. Right. That's a different- It is disappointing. That's a, that's a different deal. And, and really that narrative co-ops and, and shrouds their work uh, under a dark cloud when, when otherwise it would just be- Incredibly important. So mm-hmm. the, one of the best, we call this a longitudinal study, a study that's lasting decades. Uh, and they've actually been able to show uh, their, I mean, they're, they're pretty cautious in their, in their, uh, in their descriptions of their work. Um, but speciation may have occurred. Uh, one species of finch that was a migrant or an immigrant to uh, this island of, of Daphne Major uh, or even all the, but Daphne Major is a medium ground yeah, finch. Yeah. And so this one, this immigrant comes in, he's got a slightly different beak. He's got a slightly different song. And over time, he breeds with another individual and their offspring all inherited and or were taught that song by him. And they start singing a slightly different song. Mm-hmm. And that song uh, was effectively, at least for the time being, effectively isolating those birds from the others on the island they started to interbreed the offspring would only breed with each other because they recognized that song and it was just different enough 
They would not breed with other birds that had a slightly Never different song. Never breed or, I'm just curious, uh, never breed or so, usually not? Or is it, was it pretty, leading pretty effective? Up, leading, up to, leading up to this uh, significant drought, there was an occasional breeding with another bird. But after the drought occurred, and the only remaining offspring from that a lineage of that immigrant, they would only interbreed okay. since that point in time. And so a possible speciation event right. where, the, where this birds, uh, these birds, because you of their they vocalization- would only they would only breed with, with, with their, their siblings sib right. or with so their- So not interbreeding with the other- Yeah, group. yes. Yeah, interbreeding. Okay. Intrabreeding. Yes, yeah. correct. Thank you. Um, so, but, but interesting how something, something as simple as, or seemingly as uh, maybe not big a deal as a slight difference in a bird song can lead to- Speciation. Uh, speciation. And yeah. speciation and is something yeah. that the Lord built into yeah, his creation. Uh, you know, a lot of times we think we've- if we s accept speciation, we've somehow jumped into to bed with the evolutionists, and we haven't. Um, Not at all. The, the issue that creationists have with evolution is this increase in complexity and generating wholly different kinds. A branching in, in, a, in a, a tree to one species becoming two, where you've effectively, effectively isolated these two subpopulations so they don't interbreed and they start taking on their own characteristics that they're still it's it's horizontal in the sense that neither one of those populations is getting more complex and you're starting with the same basic gene pool and you are fracturing it in a different different ways right whether it's gene flow or or isolation you're dealing with the same deck of cards, more or less. Different hands are dealt, but same deck. But when you're talking about a bird, I mean, a, say a, a reptile or a dinosaur generating a novel structure. Right. Novel physiology where the gene, this is the way I define macro, is where you're actually getting, and this is where I'd say it's fiction, you're actually through... No external guidance by a creator, just mutations generating novel information that code for new, absolutely new things. New, so new pieces say, of machinery we've move, never seen. Yeah, or new anatomical features. Yeah. Like we've got the beak, you've got the bony core of the beak, but then you've got the keratinized beak over the top. Um, this is a, a structure that is uh, requires certain genes to generate a hardened keratinized beak it's not just it it's not sufficient to just tweak existing genes of a creature randomly and generating a complex keratinized beak now that's actually simpler than a lot of things yeah but still making something that's functional and new and it works in the environment the creature works. lives in. It's not just hidden in the genes. It's not there. Yeah. And then you, now it's there. That's not been observed. The only thing that's been observed in uh, field biology is the expression of genes that were there all along, hidden, or modification of existing genes that now are expressed slightly different. 
for example, melanin is a, a protein that makes hair brown or black or whatever. You could have a mutation in melanin that makes it a, a more reddish melanin. Okay, that's not new information. That's, I mean, you could quibble about the definition, but that's still melanin. Right. It's an v- alternative form of melanin, but it's not new. We're talking about new things, totally new things, new behaviors, new, I mean, very new. This is where the popular press uh, drives me nuts is, is, so I Googled natural selection, examples of natural selection in one of the I'm top sure articles that come up. Yeah, there, there, there were a couple. Most of them weren't examples of natural selection at all. The, one of the most common art, popular articles popped up was a Wired.com article talking about the different elegant elegant evolutionary changes, right? So immediately we have this kind of equivocation where natural selection and evolution are used interchangeably. And so one thing I think is helpful uh, is to talk uh, what's really the, what is natural selection and what is evolution? And I like the, I like what the Scott Minnick and I think um, also Steve and Meyer have defined as three different, three different definitions for evolution. Mm -hmm. It could just be change over time which we could talk about any societal people change uh, right change over time we use evolution all the time in the business world the business evolved to adapt to changing conditions cars evolved yeah from model t's to lamborghinis our processes of technology have evolved over time and you could argue the point that they're really intelligently changed exactly um, it's evolution (laughs) but it's always like with cars it's always new information that's infused so just change over time vaguely. Uh, the second definition would be, you know, what we would call macroevolution or neo-Darwinian evolution, descent from a universal common ancestor. Right. Um, and then the third one, which is natural selection. And so it's very difficult w- in reading anything to, uh, to hear an honest portrayal of what natural selection is. It's almost always um, used interchangeably with macroevolution. The other thing that blurs the distinctions between what's fact and fiction, like micro, some people like use the word microevolution to show small changes due to usually natural selection, and you don't really have any increase in anything, and you have branching and speciation, but what blurs the distinctions for a lot of people is when they say that speciation, and they do this. Actually, technically, speciation is considered macro. And that's really annoying to me because yeah. we either say no because we don't agree with nat- macro. Right. Because we do say speciation may happen. And it's most certainly occurred since, yeah, it's since mostly day so, one and yeah. since the ark landed yeah, on I mean, Ararat. Yeah. That, sometimes I think some creationists say it happened a lot more than it, I think it did, but hmm. that's another issue yeah. of how, but branching's not the, the, the problem. Branching of a, a particular tree from one species to two or three, you know, is not the problem. It's an increase in complexity. And that is where, you know, the universal common ancestors, but the universal common ancestor to everything from beans to broccoli to butterflies to bats is is a where you look at the whole tree you have to evolve all sorts of totally new oh yeah stuff and that sleight of hand because you can say hey look at this 
look at this, little bit of change, a little bit of time. And everybody nods their head. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of change, a little bit of time. And then they'll look at you and go, well, what's your problem? If you can a little bit of change, a little bit of time, why not a lot of change, a lot of time? Right. And you scratch your head and go, hmm, yeah, I guess, hmm, but wait, that doesn't, wait, are you tricking me? Because on the surface, that sounds reasonable. A little bit of change, a little bit of time, a lot of change, a lot of time. But then you have to look at what's going on at the genetic level. Right. Are you, like when you shuffle cards and bend cards and tweak cards, you're not making new suits. You've got clubs, hearts, spades, and diamonds, okay? No amount of fiddling and shuffling are going to give you a new suit. Yeah. Okay? You may bend cards and fray them and maybe put a mustache on the king, but (laughs) (laughs) you're not going to get new cards. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Uh, And as you shuffle them, yes, you're going to get sometimes a bad hand, a good hand, but that hand is really, whether it's good or bad, it really depends on the game and which, which is a winning, which is the winning hand in a particular environment. And I'm, Referring to the cards as like genes. Right. But it really is easy to get people who say, I don't know biology. And then the evolution say, oh, no, it can happen. It can happen. Well, actually, it can't. And it's easy to hide behind the lack of time because you're only doing max a few decades of research. And you can, you can parade all of this research and showing wonderful examples of natural selection. Uh, which are wonderful examples of natural selection. Right. I don't have a problem. It's just you can't with that. Um, then they'll say, well, you can't expect me to, in my research time, get a lizard to actually evolve wings and fly away uh, because that takes hunt, you know, tens of millions of years. I don't have that kind of research time or budget. And so they can easily say, we don't have enough time to show that, but if you gave it enough time, it would happen. And the creation says, well, no, it couldn't happen. And so you're sort of stuck in a, tr- uh, you know, stalemate. And then, and, say, and then a fossil evidence is leaned upon and yeah. all, almost all of those types of studies assume off the assume, get-go, they assume common ancestry at the, at the get-go. Right. And so you can find all sorts of creatures in the fossil record. Absolutely. And you can see that there's reptiles in the fossil record and there's theropods and there's birds and there's all sorts of things. And you can put them in an evolutionary lineup, but that doesn't prove that, that this is a lineage. It proves that there's all sorts of fossils of all sorts of creatures. It doesn't prove that this begot this begot that. Yeah. Do you have any favorite uh, natural selection stories or any creature that you know has speciated or or shown significant natural selection that that kind of i don't know that jumps out at you as especially notable or, or interesting you know i've read the beak of the finch you're you've mentioned maybe some new stuff showing natural selection because of the drought on daphne major uh medium ground finch population because of this devastating drought a lot of birds died and all of the soft seeds were eaten up and all beak-sized medium ground finch could eat them up. But 
uh, once the drought really set in, only really, really hard nuts, hard seeds, very hard to crack, yeah, were available for food. And the, the smaller beaked finches didn't have the hardware to crack those seeds, and they died of starvation. And the larger beaked finches were had the the robust enough. It was actually the difference in bill size was really small, um, but was enough. It was but between that was the life threshold. and death. Yeah. It was between life and death. Interesting. I can't. I don't know the exact numbers. And so the ones that had a bigger beak depth and not length. It was the depth, meaning from top of the bill at the base of the bill to the bottom of the bill. The thickest part. Thickest part of the beak. That was the beak depth. And and the ones that survived were had a little bit bigger beaks. And they passed on those bigger beak genes to their kids. So that was a, a good classic example of natural selection. You know, the drought selected for the bigger beaked finches they survived the ones of the same species with smaller beaks died. And so the beak size went up after the drought a little bit. But then after the drought, when it went back to a normal season, the beak size went down. So essentially, it wasn't directional. It was right. oscillating. Yeah, it's a great point. And you can, you can say, well, if you, had, if you had continual droughts for... What, <laughs> I mean, to run the scenario of lots and lots of droughts to get increased beak size, you don't end up with these enormous beaks. You end up with a lot of dead birds because, you know, this kind of, this kind of directional selection, you, you only reach a certain point in which the finches can't get bigger beaks. The only way you can get bigger beaks is get bigger bodies, but then you need more food. And I mean... There's trade-offs. Right. Um, you just don't wind up after several million years with a toucan. With right. An enormous, I mean, just facetiously, you, you can't just keep driving it one way. Um, you can oscillate a particular species to certain points beyond which you just can't push them any farther unless the genes allow it. That's the thing. You, you you can't get something completely new until somebody comes along and loads it with new software, new genetic software. Right. And that's where we can update our computers. We can make our computers do new things by uploading new software. But the mutation is the only thing they've got. They, they don't have, they can't fall back. They can't invoke a divine agent to get them to change it in a way that's significantly different. And finches, then, regardless of wh whatever they do on the islands, finches will stay finches. Right. Well, and they will invoke this thing called horizontal gene transfer, mm. which we hear about increasingly. Yes. In kind of this, uh, this uh, that and uh, this endosymbiont hypothesis, kind of these sub-hypotheses underneath the umbrella of, of neo-Darwinian evolution. As, so, as yeah, proposals for solving these problems yeah, we're talking about. But horizontal gene transfer, yes, you're get this population is getting a new gene, but it's not, it's new to them, but it's not new. It's like trading baseball cards. You you can get horizontal gene gene transfer, but 
ultimately where, and it's interesting, it makes for a wild card there, but still, it's still a card that was created. You did some trading, but right. it was- Fundamentally, uh, it came from the same deck. Right. And it, I've, with horizontal, I haven't looked too much into horizontal gene transfer, whether it's between species or even even wildly different. There's some pretty wild proposals out there. Not much data uh, regarding horizontal gene transfer. You know, so you think of, you think of a, a family tree and we, we talk a lot about the creationist orchard and we're natural selection fits really well into the refinement of these individual orchard uh, trees and uh, a horizontal movement would be from left to right. Right. Some, some kind or creature uh, somehow transferring its genetic material to a, a completely different type of creature. As There's not like, much evidence for that. Okay. There's a from, lot of like, evidence from one tree to another, bacteria. from a creationist orchard, one tree to another. Right. There's using, a lot of, say, a virus or something. Yeah, exactly. Virus and bacteria uh, being kind of the, the primary vectors. Right. To, to for, get, and that will make for, you know, interesting things. But ultimately, the information, even if it's shuttled around in ways that are sort of bewildering to us, wow, you know, that's pretty amazing. But at the same time, it's not de novo, ex nihilo, in, in genesis of information. It's, it was there, it was created, it popped into a new, it, it popped from this group of organisms, if there's evidence for it, over here. That's interesting. So in one sense, it might be new to this creature, but it wasn't ultimately new. It came from another creature and then had a vector transfer. Again, you said the data's weak. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not averse to that. It, that could happen. Yeah, it's an interesting process. Uh, maybe to, to wrap up here, sure. uh, one of my favorite groups of creatures lately, haven't studied them in depth, but uh, the cichlid fishes oh my. of East Africa, oh my. Lake Victoria, Lake Malawi, just kind of think of the, the brightest conglomeration of, of mostly small, but there are a wide variety of sizes of these fishes as well, including, including uh, probably one of everyone's uh, dinnertime favorites, the tilapia. Mm -hmm. um, but these cichlid fishes have kind of a shocking diversity. Oh, man. And it's thought that, uh, that they've speciated over, over time in, in part because of uh, their differences in their jaw structure mm -hmm. and how some of them will feed um, maybe by grazing on rocks, kind of like the gastropods and the radula we've talked about, where mm -hmm. others are, are more hunt and uh, predatory type of behavior. Right. Um, and so uh, it's, I, I just think it's neat to see how God has blessed us with a rich biodiversity. And that does include some change over time. Right. Uh, within kinds. And we can ask ourselves how much change is possible. And that's sort of the live debate now within creation science yeah. is, did all the cichlids or come from, you know, because that, that's pretty massive amount of speciation. And 800 I'm, plus species. Yeah, that's a lot of speciation. And so it's just a matter of, is, we need to study that and go, is that possible to produce that kind of variety from one ultimate created kind? Yeah. These are, these are questions that are on the, on the, on the table. On the docket. And your kids are going to study them and answer them. Yes. Good chatting with yeah. you today, Gordon. Good chatting with you as always. All right. See you next time. See you. Thank you for listening. 
And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com.